Scuttlebutt, the official podcast of the National Museum of the Surface Navy. I'm Marianne Fengler, and we are headed into part two of our panel discussion from our 10-year anniversary. And this one's pretty fun. We get into stuff like Mike Walks and David's Fire Stick and Lost Keys and all kinds of good stories from Sassoon Bay and the Ghost Fleet. And Sue Schmidt talks about the gestation of our volunteer program, which is still the core and lifeblood of this institution. So again, apologies for the quality of the audio. It was recorded outdoors, but uh, sit back, enjoy, and uh, come along for the ride. Um, speaking of acquiring things. What, do we what did you all have to acquire before you even got the battleship out of there? Because I think you were missing a few pieces after 20 years sitting in mothballs. <laughs> Hold on. We, we, were loose. we were missing a few screws, Kyle. <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> we, did not find, we did not find those screws on the mic walks, did we? No. no. I don't know how we, have we gotten those screws or are we still no. missing those screws? No. We may still be missing those screws. I guess this is partly my story, isn't Mike it? Mike Walks. That was, yeah. that was the transition to Mike Walks. I keep hearing about the resourcefulness of the crew here. Yeah, but they became legendary in a different way. So the ship was moored in something called a, a raft of other ships. And in fact, the Iowa had uh, two anchors on her stern, two on her bow. Her two bow anchors were out about uh, well, five or six shots. But uh, next to us was 11 ships, 12, okay, I think. Uh, and we, we decided we needed to get a few items. We were looking for things like rat guards, welding gear, uh, just about anything. We needed some, more, some extra mooring lines. The, the shore power connections were gone, uh, the actual plugs, really expensive stuff. And so uh, probably in the second or third week, I started to scrounge on the other ships. We were often just given the keys by the MARAD personnel. Because they were sleeping in the wardroom. They were sleeping in the wardroom. We were still finding uh, cushions from sofas literally all over the ship three years later, because that's what they did. But uh, we, we became uh, scavengers of sorts. We went to ship to ship, which if you think about it, late summer, early fall of the Delta, the Sacramento Delta, you know, it's probably 95, 98 degrees and pushing 90% humidity, and it was tough. The so steel they was in the sun yeah. with no airflow? So yeah, they became known as mic walks. And so I drug people out. Everybody who came out did a mic walk, and it was brutal at times, but we got a lot of gear, uh, just dragged it literally across ship to ship to ship, and, and that's saying something. Uh, it was an amazing effort, and plus we found a lot of darkness, and you, you uh, shed light yeah. on that, David. <laughs> yeah, that's a David story there. <laughs> Ships so, are pitch black, by the way, when they're in the mothball fleets. Yeah. They're all pitch black, and you don't know what they look like. There is, uh, so my employer at the time was a little search company out of Mountain View that you may have heard of called Google. And uh, they did a Christmas swag. They had a, a super high-end flashlight called a fire sword that Google had designed, and it was about a bazillion candle power. And so I would take material. That. <laughs> um, so we would t I would take that with me, and we'd go hunting for stuff. And I remember one time we were over either on the Cinnabon or the... Um, Kawishua. Yeah, the Kawishua. And... Uh, I was down in the engineering department, all the way down in the lowest level of the engineering department looking for sound-powered phones, uh, and I had my fire sword with me, and the deck grates are open up a couple decks, and I see the lights playing around up above, and I hear Jonathan's voice, geez, looks like he's driving a car around down there. <laughs> so yeah, it was kind of cool. I did have the coolest flashlight. The, the one I remember is walking onto that one deck where we didn't know where we were at, and it's pitch black, and you, <laughs> we got our little things, and we're like, how, how far back does that go? And he comes around the corner, and he's like, <laughs> 500 feet down. 
It was like a full like ammunition. Whoa! Of course, the flip side to that was that flashlight had a big heat sink on the front with a bunch of fins, and after you used it for about 30 minutes, you kept trying to hold it farther and farther back because it was getting too hot to handle. So, so, so I have one particular memory I have of that is we need plugs. We have no electrical plugs. They're the joy plugs. Um, and they're expensive and they're not easy to find that to hook into shore power off of a ship so we need pigtail shore plugs and so I used to call it North American van lines I'm like we better load up what we can because once we leave it's going to be hell to get back and get it um, so we'd go out there and we'd look, we looked and we looked and we looked and we ended up on the back of the Roanoke and there was these big rolls of, of, of these shore cables and it's like there they are that's exactly what we need Okay, now we need to figure out a way to get off a pigtail because there's no way we're going to get off this 500-foot extension. Talking cord. about a cable that big, electrical cable. And so, so here we go on another adventure, finding a way to get <laughs> cut off the pigtail that we needed. We ended up in a shop on another ship and found a wood saw, <laughs> like like an old school shop wood saw. It wasn't even a good one. It was it wasn't a, good a good one. <laughs> and we went back up to the Roanoke. I'm using. <laughs> You know what I want to keep saying, no, and going back up to the Roanoke, <laughs> and uh, we had the ship's boats in from the Iowa in the 80s who swore every third word, rest in peace, boats yeah. and Patnod, love the man. Um, he was uh, uh, from Maine, had one of the, the, the worst accents you can imagine. Those of you that have been in the Navy years ago or been in the Navy for years, you know these W-4s, these weren't... Um, that have been in the Navy 33 years, been at sea 32 and a half of those 33 years. And you, it takes a while to understand what they're saying. Like every other word is a swear word. Um, anyways, we get up there and we pull out the saw and we go about it where each one of us goes sawing for about a 90 seconds each. About 30 minutes to cut that four inch cable. And then do the next saw, one. And then do the next one. That was hell. I, I remember that piece. But worth it. We, we got him. That's what that's, that's actually that's probably what's powering, powering us right now. So. You should have called Sue. She said she had a circular saw. We didn't know Sue at the time. Uh, yeah, I came along a little later. I want to explain one thing to people who may not be familiar. The portholes were all covered. It was, everything was covered. And the other thing was there was only like one door in, one door out. And there were uh, dehumidification barriers that were tack welded. Uh, along the passageways, so no matter where you wanted to go, you couldn't get there from here. So you have to just sort of set the scene in your head. You know, <laughs> I, like, I thought I knew my way around the ship having served on here, but every time I tried to t go someplace, I'd turn a corner and there was a steel wall in front of me where somebody had blocked up a door. It was, you know, go up two decks to go aft and down three to go forward, and uh, it was awful. So I'm, I'm going to actually, Kyle, anybody out here have any questions right now? Sure. I mean, we got to be pretty boring to you. <laughs> is this boring? Um, we'll talk forever. Oh, we got one, a question we got in the back. Oh, yeah. Where's the other mic? Say again? So no. the question is, did they ever remove the engine? And the answer is no. Um, the, uh, the battleship, basically, they hang the engines from a wire and build the ship around it. Uh, that's not exactly how, how it works, but the engines here are not what you would think of as regular... Uh, car, truck, or boat engines, they are massive steam boilers and turbines that take up large, large portions of the ship. 
immediately following this tonight, we're going to be uh, reenacting the Battleship movie, and I see about <laughs> four of you out there that are ready for that job, that um, would be prepared for that job. So uh, get yourself warmed up out there. Because we do have oh fuel God. and weapons and everything. I think, I think we, uh, we do have oh a XO. We've got a CO. Yeah, I think we're good. Main engines officer. I think we're ready to go. As long as you all are ready to go. Huh? Invade Catalina. There we go. You ready to go to San Clemente again, Dick? <laughs> yeah, two or three people to carry a 2,700-pound shell down uh, Broadway. <laughs> Right beneath the equipment designed to move it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My favorite scene. All right, so let's hit some notable memories. Yeah. So there's a question here on our on our little cheat sheet that says uh, uh, unexpected discoveries, and I wanted to share this one thing. Um, oh, this was cool. <laughs> she knows what's coming. I know exactly so what's our, coming. Um, our very first volunteer, I think, was Russ Farnell. Simply put. Simply put, our very first volunteer was uh, is Russ Farnell, whose key phrase is simply put. Um, simply put, Russ. And so Russ gave me a call, uh, and I was working at Google, and I phone rings, and I'm like, hey, he says, hey, this is Russ Farnell. And I knew him because I volunteered on Hornet, and he's a big mover and shaker over in the Hornet organization. Uh, and he says, uh, Dave, well, simply put, I was working in the wardroom and I found your dog, your keys, and I wanted to know what you wanted to do with them. And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I have my keys. He goes, well, I know they're yours because they have your dog tags on them. And I'm like, dude, I don't have my dog tags on my keys in 18 years. And, uh, and he goes, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put them in your mailbox. And I figured, you know, I'd been staying on board on weekends, and I dragged a bunch of my high-speed, low-drag, Navy-issue camping gear on here. And I just figured a dog tag had dropped out of there, no big deal. And so I come on board the next Friday, and I go check my mailbox, and I pull out uh, a single locker key and one of my father's dog tags and my dog tag, which was the set that I had worn all throughout boot camp, and I lost my first week aboard Iowa. I had to get the master at arms to cut my locker open. And, um, and I had not seen those keys since November of 1987 when I had reported on board. And that was the first sort of crew artifact that we found. Uh, and it was pretty special and it was a pretty big deal because it had one of my dad's dog tags on it, which are not really replaceable. And uh, so people ask, they're like, hey, you ever wonder if this is what you're supposed to be doing? And I'm like, mm, not really. Actually, I'm going to correct you. It was not the first crew artifact we found. The first crew artifact we found was your personnel oh, file on the EXO desk. Okay, so. <laughs> Which is very true, by the way, so you may laugh about it, but it is very, very true. So we had an EXO named Iron Mike Fahey, and a lot of times if you went to, at rest his soul, by the way, Iron Mike passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and if you went to XOI or Executive Officer's Inquiry, oftentimes he would not send you to mass, but he would give you some sort of remedial training because I was 18 years old and uh, I had done something silly like Miss Ship's Movement uh, when they moved the ship from Portsmouth back to, uh, back to Norfolk when we were coming out of the yards. Now, in my defense, um, we didn't have cell phones and they run a little flag up like you're supposed to see from the bar that you're drinking in across town and so yeah, it didn't work. And so I got back, and the ship was not there, and I drove across the bay to, to um, you know, through the tunnel to Norfolk, and I was at muster the next morning, but we were all busted for missing ship's movement, and we all went to XOI, and we all had to write an essay about why missing movement is a bad thing. And Iron Mike apparently filed those in the file drawer in the XO's 
uh, cabin and office, which happened to be where uh, Jonathan and Mike were using as an office. And so I'm on board working one weekend, and Jonathan comes running out of the office with a piece of paper. Look what I found. Look what I found. I'm like, give me that. So I read it, and I'm like, yeah, thanks. And I'm trying to take it back. He's like, oh, no, no, we're a museum. That's an artifact. We don't like that. <laughs> I have a quick one about keys, just because, uh, did you want to say anything else about the key story? Oh, no, I'm good with okay. that. Uh, we were missing other, like, the keys to the battleship. Where are all the keys to the battleship? And this is an ongoing thing. Did you check thing. the ignition? And we had, we had a volunteer who was about six foot seven, uh, Big Mike. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, being with him one day over, I think it was just in front of the boardroom pantry, and he was so tall, he could, you know, he'd have to duck and sort of squeeze around. And then he, he stood up, and he could see on top of one of the, the vents up there. And he goes, what's this? And he pulls out one and then two big clumps of keys. Like, nobody, we, we, st we still wouldn't have found them if he hadn't happened to have been standing, like, right there. I think I, mean, I, hid those seven. In, I think I hid those in 2004 and forgot where I hid those, to be honest <laughs> with you. There was a lot of things we hid in the overhead back then. Oh, my God. So, uh, okay, so Richmond, do you guys know what Richmond is about, or do you know anything about Richmond? Basically, the ship was up in Sassoon Bay, and it had to go somewhere into San Francisco just to get prepped for tow. And so through some magic that Jonathan can, can describe, they found this uh, place in Inner Harbor in Richmond. It was an empty dock. The city of Richmond was friendly to us, and great, we've got a place to go. So we tow out on Friday and then into Saturday in October, the 27th and 28th. There's a little bit of a party on Sunday. Everybody's happy, and everybody departs except for Jonathan and I. And the next morning, we woke up, and we kind of wandered into the wardroom, and there's one single light bulb in there. And we kind of looked at each other and just said, holy cow, they gave us a battleship. See, at least you remember that. I don't remember the, it, it the next three days. Yeah. They were the walking wounded. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty grim. Well, we, I think we had like 10 or 12 grand in the bank, and we were paying for fuel out of the back of my truck. Yes. Literally. With our own credit cards. So that, that's exciting. Go forward a few more months, and I've never been so cold in my life. The, we call this the armored icebox, and so you can tell all kinds of stories. I used to go home once every five or six weeks for about three or four days to the family. And I came back one night, and it was dark, and it would have been December or January, I don't remember for sure, and walked into the wardroom, and I'm not kidding, there's one light bulb above the table. And sitting around that table are Sue and Jonathan. And at their feet is an electric heater, and every few minutes, one of them would turn it the other way. <laughs> and we had foam, we had foam under our feet because the cold would just radiate up through and after having moved and temperatures changing every now and then the tanks would expand or contract and you'd hear wham wham doom, doom, you know these huge and they're like whoa what is that it was kind of wild she was coming to life yeah she was but just one single light bulb really dark bundled up it was just amazing we, we had a, a kind of a miserable winter at that time but it was also wonderful and we knew yeah and the, the winter the time in Richmond was extraordinary for all of us because we fell in love with the ship and we fell in love with the people who fell in love with the ship. And that's really what is the core of the culture of who we are today. So you're missing the backdrop for all of that, by the way? 
Which one? No money? The back, well, no, you got the backdrop of all of that. There's the backdrop of behind us, sitting in the lounge, is Dave Way watching the TV on the one channel that we're able to get on the antenna in Richmond. That was hilarious. And it's the Korean channel. <laughs> yeah. Not and there's no English. And nobody knows what's happening. And Dave Way is watching this. Who Dave's not here, but Dave Way is watching this, um, and he's watching 30-minute segment after 30-minute segment of this Korean channel, and it's like a kung fu show or something. And and once you go over to to Dave, you ask him what's going on. And he goes, oh, oh, hold on, watch, 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 watch. Yeah, I, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you. And he'd, he'd watch this whole show, and he had every <laughs> show nailed down to what was going to happen. He did. Yeah. Well, you made an incredible, attractive, incredibly attractive proposition up north because you said you know, it's hot, it's cold, you won't be paid, you might get a PB&J. How do you even get people to want to come aboard and then fix up the ship in a matter of months, bring it down here, and then start all over with volunteers? How does that process work? I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I said, first I called in an awful lot of favors with old friends of mine. You know who's, who really came to our rescue initially were the crew of the Jeremiah O'Brien yeah. out of San Francisco. They were wonderful. They showed up in force, like 30 of them descended on the ship. It was, it was pretty neat. But yeah. word had gotten out that the Iowa was going to be there for a limited amount of time. And... I've never seen anything like it in my entire career of doing volunteer management. They were breaking the doors down to get in. I mean, it was really, really special. And I think part of it was also they knew that it wasn't going to stay there. And they only had this limited window. We didn't know how long that window was going to be. And they'd come aboard. And it was pretty hard. We had to do a lot of, we called it busting deck, you know, taking up. Uh, some of the old decking around the margins in certain areas where we had to do sandblasting. And it's back-breaking work. And there was no, there was a lot of no. There was, there was no heat, of course, and there was no light. Very little electricity from a small uh, gas-powered generator. No, no good toilets. Toilet. No good toilets, no money. At first, there was no people. I mean, for internet, every you know, David had performed miracles in getting us any internet at all. And, you know, had a little his box flashlight with also a had antenna, in it. and we had sort to go of. up to the O11 and like jiggle the wire twice, twice a day, and <laughs> it was true. it was quite a thing. But there's a certain amount of what I'll just call bonding through misery, and then people started telling their friends, and something that happened. This, he mentioned this magic thing. We actually have more volunteers from the Richmond area now than when we were in Richmond because we've got Richmond volunteers who still come down and now they're bringing other friends who weren't involved in the initial period that we were there. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. It's pretty amazing. They're really wonderful folks. All right, so that's part two. Look for part three, the final part of this series, coming up soon. Mm -hmm.